0: Well, welcome, everybody, to Downtown Harbor Church. If it's your first time here, my name is John. I am the lead pastor around here. Appreciate you guys coming on out to our early service, our our 9 a.m. service. So today, we are wrapping up this three-week Christmas series that we are calling It Started With Three, and I can't believe that Christmas is like around the corner. And like I've been celebrating it now for, what, two months straight every single day. And I, I was telling my wife yesterday, I go, I'm actually a little sad that this is coming, coming to an end because this is the, the biggest day of the year for me. I just, I love it. There's just, and I've talked about it every single week, what I love about it. But, you know, if I were to kind of boil down the, the two things that I love most. Number one, I love Christmas trees. And, like, for me, that is that is the season. I know Jesus is the reason for the season, but I love Christmas trees. I think they're great. And the thing about Christmas trees is that everybody's tree has its own theme. You ever notice that? Like, everybody, like, once you get your tree up and you decide when you're going to put it up, and that's always an argument. But once it's up, everyone decorates their tree. They have their own theme. It's very unique. Now, when people have seen the Garippa family tree, my tree, they have described it as having somewhat of a split personality, okay? Um, the reason is, is that my wife and I have very different taste when it comes to Christmas ornaments. So when we go on vacation, one of the things that we like to do, like many people, we like to get a little ornament, sort of commemorating the trip. Or whatever, you know, if it's California or New York or whatever, you pick up an ornament. We don't get one ornament. We have to get two. She gets one and I get one because she likes... I would describe them as fancy ornaments. Okay, she likes them very fancy. Her family collects this particular kind of ornament. I don't know what they're called, but they're nice. But they're just like, they're really fancy. And she would describe my ornaments as being rinky-dink trash, okay? That's the exact word she says. You like rinky-dink trash. And I take offense to that. They're not rinky-dink trash, okay? They are whimsical, all right? They are childhood whimsy. They're joyful. Our, you know, Christmas is not so stuffy. It's like we've got to have some fun. And so that, my ornaments are fun. And by the way, as I always tell her, I work in ministry. I'm going to let you know Jesus prefers rinky-dink trash, okay? It's in the Bible. It's in the back somewhere. Keep looking for it. You'll find it. The other thing that I've, and this is a new thing for me, but the other thing that I really have started enjoying doing with with Christmas is I love to ask kids, number one, have you written your Santa list? And number two, what's on it, okay? And like a lot of my friends have kids now, and I love quizzing them because if you ask an adult what they want for Christmas, it's always like, well, I don't don't really know. You ask a kid, they'll tell you exactly what they want, down to the most minute detail. And so I was asking my buddy Ethan, He's two and a half. And I was like, Ethan, have you written your list yet? And he said, yeah, I've, I've written it. And I said, well, what's, what have you asked Santa for? And he says, well, and he's not this articulate, but he said, I've asked him for a blue umbrella and a duck. I think that, I said, that sounds reasonable. I think Santa will bring that. Absolutely. That sounds like a wonderful idea. Then I was talking to his sister, and she, Julia, I've talked about her from the stage before. She is six. She's almost going to be seven, and she comes to our house once a week, my wife tutors her. And so about three weeks ago, I was like, Julia, have you started working on your Santa list yet? And she says, no, I've, <clears throat> I've, <clears throat> I've worked on it. I said, well, what's on it? And she goes, well, you know, typical you know, six-year-old girl stuff. I want you know, Disney princesses, that, you know, the stuff Adam Duckworth's into. That stuff, she like, <laughs> all, all that stuff. She really wants that Minnie Mouse, the pink things, all that kind of stuff. And then she stops. This is a true story. Then she stops and she gets very serious and she goes, but the thing that I want more than anything else, well, that's just between me and Santa. And I go, well, what does that mean? And she goes, well, last week, my parents took me to go see Santa. We saw him at the mall. And when I was on his lap, I whispered into his ear the thing that I want more than anything else. And I go, well, that's amazing. Is it on your list? And she goes, oh, no, it's just between me and Santa. I said, oh, wow. Wow. Well, can you tell me? I would love to know what this thing And she goes, no, it's a secret. I said, oh, have you told mom and dad? Because they would love to know this thing. And she goes, no, I want them to be surprised too. And I said, well, this is going to be a wonderful Christmas. <laughs> let me know. I can't wait. Call me Christmas morning. I can't wait to hear what this surprise is. It's going to be great. All right, anyway, so that's like two things that I love about Christmas. But as we wrap up this series, it started with three. If you haven't been here before, let me catch you up to speed as to what this is about. When we're talking about the holiday of Christmas, and when we're talking about Christianity as a whole, it really did start with three people: Mary, and Joseph, and Jesus. And so every single week we've been landing on one of the members in this family unit. And in week 1, we dove into Joseph, sort of the unsung hero of Christmas, if you will. And We learned a lot about him, and even though Scripture doesn't contain a single word that he spoke, we know that his life spoke volumes. And if you were to sort of distill down his part in the Christmas play, if you will, he really is a man who pursued love and grace and others over law. And by doing that, he lost his reputation. Christmas for him was about losing a reputation, a respected reputation within his community. Mary last week, who is an amazing woman. I mean, we learned so much about her, things that we had never thought about from her, you know, read about her before. She is a woman, if you can possibly distill down at least her Christmas part. What we saw in her life is a woman who submitted her life, her plans, and her will to God. And in doing so, she gained a reputation. So you have a father who lost a reputation. You have a mother who gained a reputation. And today, I want to talk about... Jesus, Mr. Reason for the Season himself. And we're going to be landing in Matthew today. We looked at this week one with Joseph. So I'm going to kind of move quickly through a lot of the scripture before we land on today's verse. And hopefully you're going to see things now that you remember learning and you have a better understanding about it. So with that, let's dive into the scripture. Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But... Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And if you remember, this is sort of like the main line about Joseph. This is where we learn so much about him. And if you weren't here for that message, I would encourage you to go back to week one to find out what all is happening here. Continues. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. We've read all this before. Now the new stuff, the reading for the day. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. All right, let's stop and talk about this for a second. Let me just kind of describe what prophecy is for you. Because prophecy is really more than just sort of a a prediction of the future. God, all throughout the Old Testament, from the very beginning to the very end of the Old Testament, God would sort of use his prophets, these men that he would speak into their lives in a mighty and powerful way. God would use these prophets to sort of drop breadcrumbs, if you will, hints if you will, pointing us towards the coming Messiah. And these prophecies, which are all throughout the Old Testament, are amazingly accurate. And they they let us know about who the Messiah is going to be, where he's going to be born, what town he's going to be born in, where he's going to grow up, what his mother's going to look like. He even talks about how his life is going to be and even predicts how he's going to die. And this particular prophecy that we're about to get to is 750 years old older than, than, than the Christmas story itself. And what that lets us know is that Christmas wasn't a mistake. Christmas was in the works for many, many, many years. In fact, I would make the argument that Christmas was God's plan since the very beginning of time. And so what is this prophecy they're talking about? It says this. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So when you read this prophecy, which is from Isaiah 714, which is 750 years older than Jesus, older than Mary, older than Joseph, I think you're tempted to read it, and you kind of go, well, John, um, I think we got a problem here, okay? you got, you got a nice presentation going on here, but the virgin birth thing, that makes sense, but it says we're supposed to call him Emmanuel. His name's Jesus. So Here's the answer to this, and it's it's a simple one, so you might not like it, but sometimes the simple ones are the best. We are to name him Jesus, but we are to call him Emmanuel. And that is a difference, because what you see all throughout Scripture is that we actually call Jesus many, many different things. We call Jesus Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Lamb of God, Good Shepherd. Alpha and Omega, Son of Mary. And and there's so many other names that I didn't include here. We call him many things. Interestingly enough, Son of Mary, this one here at the bottom, you'll see this one just a handful of times in the New Testament. And every time you see it, you need to realize that this is an insult. It's a slur. It's a derogatory term. When somebody says this to him, they are calling out the fact that Jesus is an illegitimate child that they don't know who his father is. Because this time, you would only refer to somebody as the son of Joseph, the son of their father. But to call someone a son of Mary, ooh, that's a jab. But the one thing that we're to call him that I wanted to focus on today is from the prophecy, Emmanuel, which means God with us. So as Christians, we hear this and we think, all right, that makes perfect sense. I mean, if you were gonna describe Jesus because we kind of know who he is at this point, we say, well, that that makes perfect sense to describe him as God with us. But we forget that we live in the shadow of the cross. We live on this side of the resurrection. We have a book, the Holy Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that lets us know exactly who Jesus is. But for the Jewish person of this time, in the first century, to hear this term, God with us, it would be... Impossible, listen, impossible for them to imagine what this would look like. To imagine this idea that, that God would become a, a, a part of mankind, this wasn't, they couldn't even, they didn't even know what this would look like because realize this their relationship with God, the Jewish people at that time, was very different than ours now. This is before Jesus. So, so even though these Jewish people loved God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, he was essentially unapproachable. Unapproachable. The, the nearest thing that they could imagine as God sort of being with them is what is God's presence in the temple. Within the temple, in the inner sanctum, deep within, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. It was a room, and in the Holy of Holies, God's actual spirit lived. And once a year, a priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, could actually enter into the presence of God's spirit. But it was dangerous. And in order to get into the Holy of Holies, this one priest would have to do an insane amount of purification rituals, an insane amount of atoning rituals to make sure that there wasn't an ounce of sin in their lives. Because if they entered into that room with even a speck of sin, they would die immediately. And this was a hazard of the job. And they knew this could happen. And so when they walked into the Holy of Holies, when they were going to walk into the presence of God, they would do a couple of things. They would one, tie a rope around their waist. And two, they would attach bells to their robe. So that if they were in there and they died, people would know by hearing the bells stop moving. And people would pull them out by the rope to make sure that they didn't have to go in there and pull out the corpse. This is important to know, because this is this is the closest thing that was analogous for the Jewish people of that time to know that God. Could be with them. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be interesting if you could travel back in time and you kind of take a poll of of sort of the Jewish people in the first century? And you go, let me ask you a question. You see this sort of prophecy about God with us. What kind of man do you think God would choose to be? I mean, if he's going to come to this earth and he's going to become one of us, what kind of man do you think he's going to come to be? Now, we can't play this game because we know the answer. But I think they would probably say, well, he'll probably be a king. I mean, that, that's, that's sort of what we know of him. He'll, he'll probably be somebody who, who we can look at from afar, who's, who's unapproachable. He'll, he'll probably be a king, something of, of a great, you know, some highly respected position. He'll probably live in a palace, a gorgeous castle with, with beautiful, well-kept manicure grounds knowing what they know about their action with the high priest and the Holy of Holies, they might say, well, maybe once a year, God as king might invite someone particularly holy to come into his palace. But the truth is, nothing would prepare the Jews of this time for what Christmas would entail, for what God would actually choose to do. Now, Paul, who is one of the New Testament authors, captures sort of God's decision as to what he would choose to do and how he would come to this earth, sort of the behind the scenes of Christmas, if you will. Take a look at what he writes. talking about Jesus here. Though he was God, Jesus, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He did this by taking on the nature of a servant. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is God. Jesus was God, and when he came to this earth, he could have demanded a palace, absolutely 100%. He had the divine privilege to require these things, to to request these things, but because of love, Jesus gave up, it says, all of these divine privileges. He didn't think it was worth clinging to because there was something greater at stake, our souls. And he came to this earth and he took on the form of a servant and he would live the rest of his life serving his subjects, you and me. And Paul paints this beautiful picture of of Jesus who is king giving up his divine privileges to be born of a man who lost his reputation. Giving up his divine privileges and choosing to be born to a woman who gained a reputation. And you see this picture. It's amazing to think that the God of heaven chose to be born out of wedlock to a poor, culturally ostracized family, to a man who has essentially turned his back on the law, to a woman who, as far as society is concerned, is an adulteress, to this family that has been pushed even further to the margins of society because of their decisions to submit their life to God. This is the family that God chose. No one saw this coming. Not in a million years. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you were God and you were gonna come to this earth to impact humanity, you would set yourself up for success. But Jesus, from day one, puts himself behind the eight ball. He chooses this life where for the rest of his life, he would be labeled as illegitimate. Wherever he went, that rumor would follow him. And it just left me with one question. Why why would God choose to enter the world this way? Why Why would he choose to do this to himself? Because this is the only way that we can know how deep and wide and long and high Christ's love is for us. Because he could have come as a king. He could have come as, as a warrior commanding legions of angels. But instead, he chose to be born as an illegitimate baby to a family that has been marginalized and scandalized. And I think the reason he did this is to show us that God has identified with us in the mess that is our lives. And for the next 33 years, Jesus would live his life proving that he could redeem this situation and turn it into the greatest movement in the history of the world. See, this amazing birth does a couple of things. This amazing birth lets us know that God is not afraid of your life. This amazing birth lets us know that God is not afraid of your situation, whatever that is, and he's not afraid of your reputation, either because of something that you have done or something that was done to you. See, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know if society or if your family or or maybe even the local church has turned their back on you because of who you are what you may have done, what had been done to you, but, but the story of Christmas lets us know that God is with you. Jesus, his entire life, would prove that God the Father is not a respecter of persons, is not afraid of the mess in your life. He would befriend the rich and the poor, the pious and the sinners, and he would do all of this in an effort to restore our relationship with God. See, Jesus, this this God with us, he would teach us to live. God with us would teach us to forgive. God with us would teach us to love. You, You continue to read and you understand that God with us would heal our sick and he would mourn our dead. And no Jewish person at this time would ever think that a 750-year-old prophecy about Emmanuel, God with us, would ever include such an intimate and loving relationship with, with God. But God was not done showing us how far he would go to be with us. Paul's verse from earlier continues. It says, he, Jesus, appeared as a man. He was humble and obeyed God completely. He did this even though it led to his death even worse. He died on a cross. Let's talk about this cross for a second. For thousands upon thousands of years, Jewish people would sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of sins. That's what they were required to do by God. But they knew. They knew that this was not a... Permanent forgiveness of sin. That's why they had to do it over and over and over and over and over again. But they could never imagine that God himself, the God that they were sacrificing these animals to, that he wanted to be with them so badly that he would send his own son to be a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Isaiah, the man who predicted the virgin birth, also went on to predict how that baby would eventually die. Take a look at what he said. Remember, this is 750 years before the cross. Yet, it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, you, me, Mary, Joseph, all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet, in spite of all that, the Lord has laid on him the sins of all. This is precisely what Gabriel's message to Mary and Joseph was, that you are to name your son Jesus because he will save our people from their sins. And when you begin to think about Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, this was beyond anyone's wildest dreams to think that God would walk with us and talk with us, and eat with us, and die for us? It was unfathomable. It was unfathomable and unimaginable. But there would come a day when Jesus would no longer be with us, when Emmanuel would no longer be with us. One day, he would have to go back to the Father. His job here on this earth was done. And it's a scary notion to think that, Emmanuel would no longer be with us. But Jesus kind of caps off his earthly ministry with a surprise because he loved saying surprising things. He said this, I tell you the truth, talking to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is better for you that I go away. If I do not go, the helper will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. He will be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive him. It does not see him or or know him, but you, you know him because he lives with you and will be with you in your lives. For the first time in the history of mankind, God himself would live inside us. God himself would take up residence in the very hearts of every woman and man and child who would say yes to his son, Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, in that town of Bethlehem, in that manger, when Mary and Joseph were holding that baby wrapped in swaddling clothing, they could never have imagined, not in a million years, what God's plan would be for Jesus, for the world, and for you. So, what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? So, one of the greatest Christmas songs ever written is a song by the name of Handel's Messiah. Handel's the author. And in it, there's a great line. He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a child is given. And this is actually Scripture. This is a line right out of Isaiah, the prophet of the day. And what's so interesting about this line is that it's one truth with two perspectives. It says, for unto us a child is born. That is from our perspective, from earth. A child is born. But unto us a child is given. That's that's from God's perspective. And one day, Jesus' best friend, John, who Jesus would ask him, when I die, when I leave, would you take care of my mother Mary? Would you watch over her? John one day would write his most famous line in scripture. And he was capturing the essence of this amazing truth. Here's what he writes. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Since the Garden of Eden, since chapter 3 in the Bible, Jesus was God's plan for salvation. Jesus would be God's plan for, for bridging the gap that because of sin now exists between his creation and himself. And this gift of forgiveness, that is a gift. We don't earn it. There's nothing we can do. It's just accepting it. And and the truth is, there are many of us in this room that have accepted this gift. And our lives have been changed in ways that we can't even articulate. But there are a lot of us, unfortunately, that when we hear the story of Jesus, we think that This gift is not for us. That that maybe because of the things that you've done in your life, the way that you've lived, maybe because of things that have been done to you that you're just too far gone. That maybe that, that because of what's happening inside here that God wants nothing to do with you. Well, here's what I want you to know. God wants all people. That's you. God wants all people to be saved from the punishment of sin. He wants them to to come to know the truth that there is one God. There is one man standing between God and men. That man is Jesus Christ. And he gave his life for all men so they could go free and not be held by the power of sin. And God made this known to the world at the right time. And that right time was Christmas 2,000 years ago. And that right time is today. So I would just say this, in the spirit of this text, in, in the spirit of Christmas, I'm just gonna give you one question that I want you to meditate on for this entire season. And it's a simple one but it could be life-changing for you. Will you receive God's gift? The Bible is very clear that God has a plan for every single one of your lives. But that plan begins with you saying yes to his son. Now, as we saw with Mary, as we saw with Joseph, God is not going to force his plan on you. He has blessed you with free will. You could do whatever you want. But my prayer for you is that this Christmas season, you would invite God to be with you, perhaps for the very first time in your entire life. So this season, as we celebrate Christmas, remember, it started with a baby who would bring God into our hearts. Who would change this world forever, who would turn everything on its head. And because of his sacrifice on that cross, we could be made right with the creator of the universe. Let me pray for you. Dearly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today to celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus. Lord, I think sometimes, as, as people living in, in 2019, we forget how profound the story of Christmas is. We forget that there was a time, Lord, that you were unapproachable. But because of your son, you have now taken up residence in our heart. God, I pray that for those of us in this room, Lord, who don't know you yet as our personal Lord and Savior, I pray that this might be the year that we would invite you into our lives to forgive us of the sin in our lives, to fill that void that we just can't seem to put our finger on what that is, Lord, but I know that void is is you. Thank you for coming to this earth. Thank you for humbling yourself, living your life in a way that we know that you have identified with us in our mess, in our pain, and you loved us in spite of all of that. Thank you for the gift of Christmas. We ask all this in Jesus' name.